I invite you to keep your Bible open, but let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as we look at this words written by your servant David, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us tonight. We pray, Lord, that our thoughts and our actions might glorify you. Amen. Well, looking out from here this evening, I think that the vast majority of people here were here last week, so I apologise. But uh, needs must. And uh, last week I asked you, I started by asking you a question, what was your sense of reality? I used that uh, dreaded word Brexit, if you remember. And we saw last week in Psalm 14 that for the psalmist, the reality was that the earth was filled with wickedness and it was a dangerous place for the godly to live. And the psalmist ended up that uh, psalm with a promise from God that he would send a saviour who would save his people from the wicked people. Well, this week, as we turn to Psalm 15, which again is one of these short psalms, we're looking at a reality question again. But this time, it is formulated in a question. There's the psalm for you, just uh, five verses, pretty short. But uh, that's the question that uh, we are looking at, or the psalmist is looking at, Lord Who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? And this question is answered in verses 2 to 5 of the psalm, and then again the psalmist ends the psalm in verse 5b with a promise. And so it begs the question, doesn't it? Is mankind created to have a relationship with God? And a question that I've got for myself and for each one of us is, do we seek the presence of God? As we worship God during the week, as we come to worship God each Sunday, do we expect to be able to be in God's presence and to have a relationship with him? Well, the Old Testament gives us quite a lot of background on this. It gives us examples of people who met with God. Right at the beginning, Adam and Eve, we read in Genesis 3, that they walked with God, which must mean they had some sort of relationship with him. And then we read that God met with his servants, Abraham, Genesis 17. He met with Moses, In Exodus 13, we had the example of the burning bush, if you remember, and the example of when the uh, chosen people left Egypt, they went out across the desert and God led them in a pillar of fire and a cloud. And then God met Moses on the top of a mountain. And the people of Israel had this great desire for God to meet with him. And this led to the Ark of the Covenant and the Tent, which was finally established in the Temple in Jerusalem. And so this is all about the Temple, about the Tent, 
And what some uh, commentators categorize this psalm as an entrance liturgy. In other words, how to get into the presence of God. And so, the designation, is this that type of psalm? Well, while we have no actual description of a ritual of entering the temple's grates, it's reasonable to infer from Psalm 15 and also Psalm 25, 24 that such a ritual existed. We do know that the temple was equipped with gatekeepers whose responsibility it was to guard the purity of the place, 2 Chronicles 23. So given the opening question of Psalm 15 then, and the similar question in Psalm 24, it's reasonable for us to conclude that these two psalms function as a responsive entrance liturgy. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? So the question that David is actually asking then is this. Who will enjoy God's fellowship? Who will commune with God? Who will dwell with him on his holy hill? Verse 1. Now it's important that we note at this point that David is making a distinction here because he's, he's saying that this communion with God is not open for everyone because God cannot and will not abide the presence of moral corruption. We see this in an earlier psalm in Psalm 5, verse 4. Look what it says. For you are not a God who is pleased with the wickedness with you. Evil people are not welcome. But it goes on to say, but I, by your great love, can come into your house in reverence. I bow down towards your holy temple. So therefore, I think this psalm is really relevant to us today if we wish to experience God. And it's important that we note two things about this psalm. This psalm is not telling us how we can come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, i.e. it's not telling us the gospel. But what it is telling us is the character of the person who is in fellowship with God. Now we might well expect that the answer of this is who's in fellowship with God to be explained in terms of religious observation, observance, what happens in religious services taken by a priest, or by reference to selected people like the Jews or those who are intellectually elite or mystically elite. But no, the answer that the psalmist gives in verses 2 to 5 is of the character of the people who can dwell in God's presence, that they are righteous people. Now, it's important that we note here that the psalmist has already given us the character of this person in Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, it says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Of course, this is a description of Jesus, because Jesus is the only perfect man without sin. So what then is this person going to be like in character? 
Well, we're given three generally generalized characteristics of this person in three lines of verse 2. They are people who walk in a blameless way of life. They complete righteous actions and they speak the truth. Those are the three generalized characteristics. Now, the psalmist then goes on to expand upon these three in verses 3 through to 5a. So the first thing he says is that this person walks with integrity or blamelessly in verse 2. It's a summary, isn't it, of all that follows because integrity here does not mean sinless but it does describe a person who by God's grace sins less. It refers to the one who's whole, complete and sound. Secondly, it refers to those that do what is right. Now the emphasis here is on the doing what is righteous rather than the merely talking about what is righteous. Doing what is right and lawful and good and honest is eminently pleasing to God, whether that be in private or in public, in the church or in the office. We see this, of course, in the teaching of the Apostle James in his brief book. James 1 verse 27 says this, Religion that our God, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, it's to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So what does this actually mean in this psalm? Well, in Proverbs, we read something about this situation. Because in Proverbs 11, we read of a balance, a false balance being an abomination to the Lord. A just white is his delight. So if you think of that old-fashioned scales there, uh, unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So what is that so horrible that God would regard, regard as abominable? Well, the writing here, the writer here is referring to the ancient practice amongst unscrupulous merchants. For instance, if we wanted to go and buy five pounds of sugar, the merchant would place on one side of the balance a stone that supposedly weighed five pounds. He would then pour sugar onto the other side until the scales weighed evenly. In point of fact, the stone might only weigh four pounds, and so therefore the customer is cheated having paid for a pound of sugar he doesn't receive. And in, in this Proverbs, what the, what the writer says, this is an abomination to the Lord. Now we can't easily pass this off as shrewd bargaining or rationalizing it by insisting that everyone else does it. It's quite simply wrong to the Lord. And so we see that God is concerned with the little things no less than the big things. And it's rather stunning, isn't it, to think that God views everything we do or think in life as either wrong or right or a delight. And so we must ask ourselves the question, 
Do we regard minor misrepresentations in business or shopping or speaking as only part of the game that everyone plays? Or do we regard them as wrong before God? Because thirdly, the psalmist says this about the person who's righteous. He speaks truth in his heart. That is to say, there's a correspondence between what he thinks on the inside and what he says on the outside. The person doesn't resort to hypocrisy or feigned praise or flattery. Of course, this doesn't mean to say that we speak everything in our hearts, as it says in Ephesians 4. But it does mean that when we speak, we speak the truth. So we see here the power of speech. We know that we can encourage and we can build up people by what we say. Likewise, we know the power of the destructive, critical speech. The difference of telling the truth or telling lies that can have on others and the society in which we live. And so fourthly, we see in this short psalm in verse 3, there will be no slander is spoken by the righteous person. No wrong done by slander. No bringing of shame to others by false witness. Now this was particularly important in societies which had a shame element within them. What we say needs to be loving, constructive and not destructive. And then we see the fifth and sixth characteristics of this righteous person, that they are related We write in verse 3, the righteous person does no evil to his neighbour, neither does he take up reproach against his friend. What he's referring to here is the initiation and rejoicing in gossip. His point is that the person of integrity will neither contribute to slander nor tolerate it. Spurgeon, that famous preacher, said this, If there was no gratified hearers of ill report, there would be an end of the trade of speaking them. In other words, if there weren't people who are grateful to hear of ill reports of others, there would be an end of gossipers. And so we go on in verse 4. The righteous person is the one who despises a vile man but honours those that fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. And so this is the person whose value system supports and honours and not recognising people who are not honourable. Now, do we apply this to our culture, which often holds up people who don't live according to God's standards? Notice the black and white nature of this Hebraic text. Honour should be given where it's due. It's a Christian duty to reprove ungodliness. And so Paul teaches in Ephesians 5, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And so we read in verse 4b, the righteous person are those that are trustworthy. They keep their word, their promises, both in practical ways and legally. They are people who keep their promises in the little things as well as the big things. And then in 5a, the righteous person are those who display a lack of covetousness, the love of material possessions. 
So positively, they're prepared to, land, to lend generously without imposing high interest rates. Now, we need to understand this again within the culture of the psalmist because it was a farming culture where for many of the people, they would have had very little cash. So when the crops failed and they didn't have seed to plant for the next year's crop, they had to borrow money to buy seed. And they would be charged high interest rates, which would financially cripple these subsistence farmers. And so the righteous person doesn't do this. Negatively, their judgment isn't influenced and distorted by the hope of gain through the use of bribes and other illegal practices. So these, then, are the characteristics of the portrait of the person who may dwell in God's presence. It's all about character. It's about the words they speak. It's about their allegiances. It's about their dealings with each other. And it's about that they are going to be promised an assured place of safety. Because David concludes again with a promise in verse 5b. This person, David writes, who has these characteristics will never be shaken. They will be safe in a dangerous world. Now the word shaken here is sometimes translated moved. It indicates the stability of standing upon a rock of the covenant of God's person and law, his promises, not being destroyed by the chaotic waters of wickedness. If you like, I hope you can make this picture out, it's the picture of standing on a rocky island in the midst of a tumultuous sea. So, another difficult psalm for us tonight. How should we view and respond to this psalm? If I want to be seen as this righteous person who can be with God, how can I actually understand this psalm? Well, the commentator and writer Christopher Ashe says there are two ways of looking at this psalm. There's a negative way, which that is looking at it in the wrong way, and there's a positive way, looking at it in the right way. So let's look at the negative way to start with. He says this, we can make a false claim to be a righteous person that comes from a shallow legalistic reading. In other words, what we're doing is we're making unrealistic judgments concerning our moral standing with God. That's the first mistake. Secondly, we can respond with apathy. We cannot grasp the importance of the question in verse 1. Lord, who may dwell in your presence? Thirdly, we can respond with great zeal and energy, with a self-generated determination to do my best to be that righteous person, believing that we can achieve this. But we know in our deep hearts that we can't do that because we're human beings. So then what should our correct response be to this psalm? Well, surely we're going to be filled, aren't we, with some, some despair as we realize that human nature excludes us from the only safe place on earth, 
to be in the presence of God. We see this throughout the Old Testament, even with some of the great men and women of God. They all fail, as David did, to be righteous. But we can also be overwhelmed with gratitude that Jesus Christ, the righteous man of Psalm 1 and now Psalm 15, is the King, the Lord of all, of Psalm 2. The fact that Jesus came to earth to provide a way for all of mankind to be able to come into God's presence, not through our own righteousness, not because we can be good people, but through his death on the cross where he took the punishment for our unrighteousness. We read of this in the Gospels and the New Testament that Jesus died for us and he rose again. He ascended to be with the Father in heaven. He went to a house with many rooms prepared for us who believe and follow him. And so where David asks the question in verse 1, only Jesus finally answers it in his life and his death and his resurrection. But we can also pray, can't we, that we will experience the Holy Spirit welling up within us, bringing a longing and a desire that our hearts and lives will increasingly in practice to become more like Jesus in the grace of Jesus. In other words, that as we go on in our relationship with him, we will become more like him. And therefore, we can aim towards that righteousness that David is writing about. We can't do it in our own strength, but by God's Holy Spirit, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we can move in that direction. And that's the, that's the joy of this difficult psalm right at the end. He spends most of his time describing the nature of our fallenness, but he ends up with the promise that we have in Jesus, which we come to celebrate tonight. Amen.